This is the Knowledge Leaders Podcast with Todd Hand. My guest today is Daniel Pianko, co-founder and managing director at University Ventures. Welcome, Daniel, and thanks for joining me. My pleasure, Todd. Great to be here. Daniel, you'll be chairing Capital Roundtable's private equity investing in education-focused companies. It'll be held on January 15th in New York City. I'm interested in the topics that you've lined up to be covered, but first, I want to ask you about the state of the higher education industry in terms of current changes and innovations in that sector. We talk about the example of the difference between degree-based hiring and competency-based hiring. There's a real shift going on that today, isn't there? Yeah, it used to be, thank, first of all, thanks so much for having me on. It used to be that you, know, you, you would hire who you went to college with. Um, and, and that approach to hiring is changing. And what that means is there's companies are starting to demand more of the people they're hiring and demand different things than they did historically. It's not just good enough that you have a BA, but you also have to know how to use salesforce.com, for example. But colleges and universities aren't really set up to that for that. And what that's created is this massive chasm between colleges and universities, and to some extent high schools and other types of uh, educational institutions, and employers on the other side. So you've got colleges. If you talk to the, you know, all the surveys of provosts are that 80, 90% of provosts think that they're preparing their graduates for college. But if you turn around and go talk to the people who are hiring, hiring managers, 80 or 90% of them will say the colleges aren't providing the skills and talents necessary for their students to, for, for students to get really good first jobs. And so what this is creating is sort of this disconnect between higher education and, and the job ecosystem. And to some extent, this fundamentally relates to what college is all about. And it's it, historically, uh, the reason people went to college was just to get an education. And there was an assumption that if you got an education, you went to a good, good college, you'd get a good job. Increasingly now, what employers are saying, they're hiring through uh, applicant tracking systems, which are trying to pick up. And you know, Todd, you're in the recruiting business. You get a job spec. You can only say, you know, good people skills so many ways, but then if you're hiring for a sales position, you're going to expect them to know Salesforce or for a data analytics position, Tableau. And um, students uh, don't, aren't taught those things at college. So what we spend a lot of time on right now is thinking about that, that ecosystem to move from degree-based hiring to competency-based hiring. And a common misperception is that this means that like the university is going away. No, the universities are really good at, at creating what are called cognitive skills, uh, you know, learning to read, write, do arithmetic. But what they're less good at, and for good reason, and no one's asked them to do this, and, and they may or may not, you know, in the long run be actually delivering this, is the sort of topical career-oriented skills. Uh, so if you did a survey of who offers training in core HRIS software, almost no college in this country would tell you they do that. Or if you survey nursing programs, you know, how many nursing programs 
educate people on Epic and CERNA, the major medical record systems, and effectively no colleges or universities do that. And and that probably won't change anytime soon. And so what we're seeing is this, this ecosystem of companies that are intermediaries, finance organizations, competency-based marketplaces, recruiting firms that are bridging that gap and creating that connective tissue to solve the um, first job problem that we talk about a lot. And who's doing some exciting work in solving that problem? There are different pieces to the ecosystem that's developed. One of my favorite companies in our portfolio is a company called Credly, which is just creating credential management uh, for people to let others know what skills and competencies they have and what we call double-click on the degree. So it's not just they have the degree, but they also have other, other skills that they're able to highlight. You also have companies in our portfolio like Reviture, which work with colleges to f- identify and find really high, highly qualified students who have aptitude to become software developers but haven't graduated from with a computer science degree and provides what we call last mile training to those students in specific job skills and then trains them. Um, so we're seeing across the board this sort of evolution, the sort of rapid, rapid shift in, in a small part of the market towards these, these new providers of what we call last mile training. What is student experience advancement? I don't know. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you how we talk about it. Historically, if you went to college, when I went to college, if I wanted to register for class, first I had to go to the bursar's office, then I had to go to the registrar's office, then I had to go to my advisor, then I, then I had to go to my major advisor, and and all to register for a class. And you know, going to college was sort of like going to the DMV, the Department of Motor Vehicles, and and, and you'd, you'd go to this you know Sisyphean or uh, ray of departments that only exist in in the world of universities, and it became very difficult. It is very difficult to navigate it. And, and that um, was very difficult, especially for first generation students and, and other students who may not have uh, may not have experienced similar types of operations in the past. And so we have very high dropout rates. And, and we think that over time, how students go to school is going to change, right? We're used to when we want a car, uh, just opening an app, clicking Uber and, and having a car show up 10 minutes later. Uh, that is going to happen on the college campus. And what we're seeing is some of our portfolio companies take at MidHub, for example, is uh, which Bill Gates just tweeted about and has gotten New York Times coverage, et cetera, is an AI chatbot so that uh, if you have a question uh, for an admissions officer at a University of Georgia Tech or uh, hundreds of universities around the country, at MidHub, has an AI chatbot that answers 90% of those questions. So 90% of the questions that you ask an admissions officer historically are now being asked through a chatbot. And the 10% higher level questions are still being asked to a person and the, the chatbot knows to, to, to put those up the chains to, to, for human intervention. What this does is it dramatically expands the amount of time that the admissions officers have to actually work with students to get them in the process and answers a lot of their basic questions. And then through what what is traditionally called the summer melt season, where, you know, students who have gotten in or, you know, they they just don't show up to class over the summer, dramatically decrease summer melt by 20, 30 percent because they're able to push notifications, work with students, make sure students' questions get answered, make sure that their financial aid gets filled, filled out appropriately, you know, pings them when there's a problem. 
and you're seeing in MidHub uh, become, well, hey, this is this is how people should experience college, right? Not going physically to seven different departments to register for a class, but having a AI-driven chatbot answer 90% of your questions, like how much does it cost? How much do I need to pay? Where do I need to show up? What's the first day of class? All those basic questions automatically answered and leaves time for um, humans to interact with students around admissions advisors to interact with students around things like, Hey, you know, how do I know this is the right place for me? How do I, how am I successful in a play in, in, in college? You know, what are the things I should be doing? And had a dramatic impact on how many people actually show up to college and, and are retained by hundreds of institutions. Is the higher education sector embracing these innovations? So I think that's one of the most interesting questions that we're going to grapple with in about 30 years. I think if you talk to the average, a lot of, a lot of people are doing a lot of things. But I don't, and, and you got to understand about the university. The university is one of the oldest institutions in modern society. Besides the Catholic Church, uh, universities, which the first university in the Western world was founded in 1088, you know, the university is one of the oldest institutions we have as a society. And it has changed relatively little and has a huge amount of societal currency. You know, the, the way people were taught for a thousand years has barely evolved or barely changed. So by that logic, we're, the rate of change is accelerating dramatically. Conversely, you know, if you look at this relative to almost any other industry faced with disruption, it's not moving all that quickly. And I, I think what we're looking at is actually a lot of traditional colleges becoming the disruptors. Like I think Western governors, Southern New Hampshire, ASU, these schools that are driving massive online scale in a nonprofit setting are actually going to set the table, set the agenda for that everybody else has to catch up to. And so I think those institutions are actually going to drive substantial change. As you see, you know, the rich get richer, the hallowing out of the middle. You know, it's, it's like the retail landscape or the banking landscape. You know, there are four major banks left. And then there are a bunch of small guys and nobody in the middle. Retail is the same way. You've got Walmart, you've got Target, you've got Costco, you've got Amazon now. And then you've got very few mid-sized retailers and then a bunch of small mom and pop shops or people who, who open a storefront. So you're seeing sort of the hollowing out of this great middle. And, and that's going to start happening to universities too. And what, as that starts to happen, uh, you're going to see institutions starting to realize they have to change. It either has to consolidate, get larger, get specialized, partner with these innovative organizations in order to be successful. And so is the rate of change fast or slow? Who knows? Certainly in the context of the glacier pace of the, la pace of the last thousand years, it is very fast change. Uh, but relative to sort of the newspaper or media industry circa 2000, the change is relatively slow. What's currently happening today in the for-profit higher education sector? So I think for-profit higher education has, if not received its death knell, certainly been dealt something akin to a mortal blow. I think that the recent closure of Virginia College last week, even under a Trumpian regulatory regime, indicates that the for-profit college world that created this industry in the late 90s, 2000s, if not gone, barely a shadow of itself. And you know, even you know, the University of Phoenix take private, even the Strayers, these institutions are having to change dramatically. They're radically lowering their prices. They're focusing on quality. They're changing 
every day. And the and and some of them are going to be not for profits. And so those that are successful, similar to what's happening in the nonprofit world, will continue to scale and they're going to see a different landscape, a different ecosystem. No longer are you competing with a dowdy old not for profit that has been attracting the same, you know, students from a 30 mile radius, but now you're competing with Southern New Hampshire or Western governors. And mind you, those are really tough nonprofit competitors and they have a tax advantage over you, a reputational advantage over you. So I think the traditional for-profit world is going to have to change dramatically. Again, the same trends you're seeing in the nonprofit world are occurring in the for-profit world. You're seeing schools like St. Augustine or University of Nicosia develop real areas of expertise. I mean, the top 10, top 20 blockchain course in the in the world is taught from the University of Nicosia. It's competing with Stanford and Harvard in blockchain because it's highly specialized, but it's a private for-profit university. St. Augustine College, a laureate company, had great reputation in niche healthcare. Tiber Health in our portfolio, which is training doctors in a new and unique way, is building a reputation as a top medical school. Uh, so you've got to be very specialized or get to immense scale and compete with the Western governors of the world. And so I think you're going to see a continued shakeout in the for-profit sector, a continued shakeout in the not-for-profit sector, all driven by the same fundamental secular shifts, which are the rise of large institutions, the demand for high return on investment programs, and the shift away from, oh, you went to college, I'm going to hire you type hiring and into more skills and competency-based hiring. Where are we in the growth trajectory of online in higher education? Are we more than halfway up it? Are we towards the top or are we just starting? It depends on what you define as online. Uh, the way we've traditionally defined it is we're towards the end. The growth in online of sort of what you would call the traditional online environment has slowed. It has capped out at about a third. You, you know, traditional colleges will let you take a couple courses online, and and that's kind of it. Now, outside of the United States, this has only begun uh, in places like Brazil. Africa. We just had a portfolio company get a large investment from Goldman Sachs, which has gone from zero to 15,000 students online or hybrid, but mostly online throughout Africa. You're looking at these massive growth of online the way we currently define it outside of the United States. So in the US, eighth or ninth inning, outside of the US, first inning. But here's where it's going to get interesting, Todd. You're seeing new models develop that redefine what online is. You're seeing organizations like Minerva Project come up focusing on elite students with a really innovative way of, of teaching online in quotes, but not really online. And so I think what you're going to start seeing is new, quote unquote, online models that are really just starting to redefine what the bundle of education is. The bundle of education for many years was you show up at a physical campus for four years and you learn, you read history, which I did. And I loved my experience. That's not what you know, kids these days want. Millennials want a different experience. They want to travel the world, which Minerva is doing. You're, you get a course, uh, you do a semester in, in six different countries and four continents. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And so these kinds of new innovative models that redefine what online is, or what hybrid is, you're going to have VR-based instruction. Is that in person? Is it online? 
what about VR based instruction in doing HVAC repair, but then, uh, or, or nursing, uh, but then coming to a physical location to do your in-person simulations. I mean, there's a whole world that technology is opening up that's redefining what online is. Uh, and it's really exciting. So it's like online 2.0, 3.0 and beyond. Yeah. I mean, squared. Logarithmic functional change. Daniel, what do, you, what do you see out there as an underreported story? Something that you think is significant that's happening that isn't getting enough attention? So I think one of the most interesting areas we're focused on right now, I'm focused on personally, is, well, two areas. One is the financing of higher education. And everyone reports on the $1.5 trillion student loan crisis we have. And, and, and we have a train wreck coming there. And God, I feel bad for the for the policymakers who have to figure this one out. We're really focused. We spent two years looking at this space, and 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 I think the answer to this is income share agreements, which is changing how we finance higher education away from debt towards a percentage of your income. And what this really does is it makes return on investment driven education critical. So I think I said earlier that the shift in why people are going to school away from just getting an education to getting a job. And the easiest way to define that for somebody is, well, how long will it take? You know, what percentage of my income do I have to pay it back? And over how long? And in the developing world, we like to say that you have to have a return on your investment in education within three years cost you a dollar to get an education, you need to at least make an incremental 33 cents a year in order to, for, for that to work in the developing world. And I think something like similar to that is going to start developing here in the US where you're going to say, okay, I'm willing to give a third of my income for three years or five years or 20% or 10% or some percentage of my income for a period of time. And, and that's going to be what funds my education as opposed to debt. And there's got to be a real quick payback. Otherwise, I'm not willing to do it. And that is happening in coding boot camps. But now there are about 20 colleges that are uh, employing these income share agreements. And, and I think that's going to be um, one of those underreported stories just creeps up on the whole industry. And in this world, uh, one of my favorite, I was a history major, as I think I mentioned earlier uh, in college. One of my favorite books was called Form Follows Finance. And it was about why buildings look the way they look. And the author had a compelling thesis to me, which was buildings look the way they look because of the financing mechanisms available to them. And the form of a building follows the financing of a building. And it was a fascinating read. And I think what, what's going to happen over time is the way we've thought about education around just, hey, it costs 100 grand because it costs 100 grand, it is going to shift to a value-based pricing of education. And I think that's what income share agreements are going to do. They're already doing it in coding boot camps. They're already starting to do it at dozens of mid-tier colleges. And I think if you fast forward five years, you're going to see ISAs. If you're not offering an income share agreement and you're a college, then you're going to lose students and you're not going to be as competitive. And what it's going to do is going to price your education relative to the economic value of that education. And not everybody will use an income share agreement. There'll be plenty of people who can afford to go to school because their parents are willing to pay for it. There are going to be plenty of people who are going to make non-economically rational decisions like be a history major, which I did. And I think people should be entitled to make that. But at least it's going to put a price tag on that decision. And I think that's going to be one of those like serious shifts in how we as a society think about higher education. What was the second underreported story? 
Ah, um, well, tied in with that is employer pay models, where you're going to move to employers providing the, the the payment for the education. And I'll, I'll add one more, which is I think highly specialized, unique educational offerings like medical schools or other you know things that aren't aren't in the mainstream today are going to be digitized. Right now, you think about digi- you know the, the digitization of curriculum only in sort of like history. Like everyone wants to do the right, the, you know, calculus 101 or remedial math 101. That's where all the money and, and focus is. I actually think the, the, the quicker path to competency-based education is going to come at the upper end of the market, at the, at the medical school, the law school, um, where you actually have out uh, tests that test competency on the back end. And you're going to see that as well in, in the advanced technical requirements and in, in software design, uh, healthcare, et cetera. Let's switch over to the Capital Roundtable. And for those of you listening that have never been to the Capital Roundtable, it's held twice a year, January and July. And it is a phenomenal place to meet investors in education and executives and thought leaders. Daniel is chairing the January 15th event in New York City. Daniel, what can we expect in terms of topics and panels that will be covered that day? Yeah. First of all, Todd, you know, you've been a, a big supporter of the roundtable for many years, um, and it's it's a wonderful event uh, held in New York at the University Club. It is a uh, it, you know drinks the night before, uh, and um, it's one of these kind of really great groups to get together, talk about what's going to happen next, and, and how to invest in education. Every every capital roundtable, because regulation is such a Big issue. Every every panel will talk, will talk about every every capital roundtable will talk about regulatory. Here, because we're living in an age of divided government, we're going to be we're going to we're going to ask kind of a, a great panel, including the head of Chia, Jeannie Allen from Center of Education Reform, uh, and some real innovators on the accreditation side to talk about if you're going to tabula rasa accreditation, what would that look like? Um, which I think is something we've never done before, and, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Second, since we are focused on last mile training, we are going to have a panel on what last mile training is. I'm really excited of the group of investors we have from early stage, like Learn Capital, up through Tyler Newton uh, of Catalyst, and then some some really cool companies. Like um, we have a, a company that does uh, that that recruits software developers out of workforce boards called Tectonic and Heather Terenzio will be on that panel as well. Uh, we're going to have a panel because on, on how to solve the student debt crisis, uh, income share agreements will be a part of that, but it'll be much broader than that. And then a panel focused on non-traditional ways to invest in education. I mean, everyone, everyone talks about, okay, I'm going to go buy a, buy a college, right? That's a traditional way um, PE firms have invested in education, but, but that's really changing and people are looking at new ways to invest in education, not just sort of buying a school. Uh, and I'd say just across the board, this, this capital roundtable is going to focus a little bit more on the higher education landscape rather than K-12. So if historically it's kind of 60-40 K-12, this will be more 60-40 higher ed. So um, really great group of speakers lined up. Uh, I'm excited to be um, to be helping to put this together. And, and many thanks to you and Parthenon uh, and Drinker Biddle, who are the sponsors. And it's a great event because it's big enough. I think in the room, there might be 110, 120 investors and executives and thought leaders, but it's small enough that you can really have some meaningful conversations with 
a good number of that group of 110, 120. So it, it really is, it's a happy medium. Yeah, to- totally agree. And what's other nice is a lot of people have known each other. So there's some kind of core group have been for a number of years, but also, you know, every year there's some, some, some new faces driven by kind of having a different chair each, each time they run this. So it's, it's a really great event and hope to see a lot of folks there. Totally agree. All right. We're going to leave with this last question. Daniel, this is about you. This is oh. an off LinkedIn item. This is something about you. It could be a hobby, an, an interest. You know, you talked a little bit about history, something about you that most people would not know. Well, well, first of all, there's very little uh, between uh, work uh, and 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 three kids and and a crazy uh, cr- crazy life. I, I've I've stopped being interesting, but um, I'm a lifelong New Yorker, and I've lived my whole life on one subway line, the red subway line here in New York. And one of my the favorite things I've ever done was I, I actually majored in the history of the city of New York. And there was a wonderful professor named, named Dr. Ken Jackson, and he led an all-night bike tour of New York, starting at Columbia University and ending at, at, uh, just over the Brooklyn Bridge to watch the sunrise. And he was on sabbatical my senior year, and he, he we, we had gotten a little close, and he asked me when he was not... Uh, on campus if I would lead that bike tour. So my senior year, I led, you know, five, 600 Columbia University seniors on a all night bike tour, starting at Columbia, including drinks at the Ear Inn on Spring Street, you know, through Times Square, over the Brooklyn Bridge, through the Fulton Fish, Fish Market. And we bedraggled a uh, few hundred that made it all the way. Uh, got to watch the sunrise over over uh, Lower Manhattan from the Brooklyn side of the bridge, and um, I still remember that as one of the things that you probably will not find out about me on LinkedIn. But it was a ton of fun and speaks to uh, a lot about who I am. That is an awesome story. What time of year was it? Was it warm? Oh, you do it. With, yeah, yeah, you do it when it's warm. It's springtime. <laughs> it's actually around graduation. You do it right, 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 uh, right after finals, but before graduation. Couple hundred of cyclists in the middle of the night. That must have been a sight to see. Yeah, it's uh, and the best part is uh, is is you stop a few times along the way for uh, you know, your 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 seniors in college. So you you just uh, uh, you stop a few times along the way. Let's just put it that way. Well, you have to take you have to take into account the calorie intake, right? You can't. Ca- you've 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 got to replace the calories you burn. Exactly. Excellent, Daniel. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thanks, Todd. We hope you enjoyed this episode and that you'll join us again for the next Knowledge Leaders podcast.